Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman. On today's show, I'm chatting with Andrew Yang. He's a former tech executive turned presidential candidate and the opposite of Donald Trump. He's an Asian man who likes numbers. Andrew is on a mission to rethink government from the ground up. Basic income, AI regulation, healthcare, family leave policies, prison reform, immigration, and even marriage therapy. His platform is huge, progressive, and I am so into it. So if you want to hear more about how to make the American dream come alive again, sit tight and I'll be right back with Andrew Yang and Let's Fix Work. Work is broken. So is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is picking up the pieces so you can take control of your career, put yourself first, and be your own HR. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hey, everybody. Lori Rudiman here. You listen to Let's Fix Work because you believe there's more to life than just building your corporate resume. That's why I want to tell you about Build Your Life Resume. It's an eight-week coaching program from my pal, Jesse Itzler, a New York Times bestselling author of Living with a Seal. I took the course earlier this year, and it has helped me in all buckets of my life work, family, mindfulness, and wellness. You know me, if you want to fix work, you got to fix yourself. And BYLR was a great first step for me. Visit takebylr.com to sign up for Build Your Life Resume. There's one more eight-week coaching program in 2018, which starts on November 1st. So you've got to act today. Jesse will help you get out of ruts, challenge yourself, and tap into your inner reserve to achieve your goals. I took the class and loved it. So visit takebylr.com and sign up for Build Your Life Resume. That's takebylr.com. Sign up today because class begins on November 1st. That's takebylr.com. Hey, Andrew, welcome to Let's Fix Work. It's great to be here, Lori. It's a fantastic subject matter and I can't wait to see if I can add some value. Well, I'm glad you're here. You know, we begin with a premise that work is broken. So right off the bat, do you agree with the premise of the show? I do. Uh, I think that we need to transform the way we think of both work and value very quickly in our society. So yes, I couldn't agree more that we need to fix work. Well, that's great. Well, I know you're an entrepreneur and a former corporate executive and you're running for president. So this is a real honor to have you on my show. Can you give me your elevator pitch? Like, who are you and what are you all about? Well, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I've started several companies and helped create several thousand jobs around the, the U.S. And the reason I'm running for president is that we're going through the greatest economic and technological transition in human history, where we've already automated away millions of manufacturing jobs, which led to Donald Trump's election. And unfortunately, we're about to do the same thing to workers in retail, truck driving and transportation call centers, food service, and on and on through the economy. So as someone who understands technology and business, I saw that our political leaders were not facing the central challenge of this time, um, which is something that you talk about all the time, about how we have to fix work. Our government, unfortunately, is asleep at the switch about all these changes that are ripping through our economy and our society, and that's why I'm running for president. I love it. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. And you've got some really interesting positions on your website. So I personally would love to know more about human-centered capitalism. What is it? Well, if you look at the way our capitalist system functions right now, it prioritizes capital efficiency and profitability above just about everything else. 
we invented GDP as a, the measuring stick for our economy during the Great Depression, and we're following it up and up, even as more and more Americans get left behind in various ways. You can see it in the indicators. America's life expectancy has declined for the last two years because of a surge in suicides among middle-aged Americans. Eight Americans are dying of drugs every hour. And these measurements are not baked into this GDP number that's going to keep going up and up because as AI and software and robots do more and more work, that's good for GDP, but may not be good for us. And so we need to change the measuring stick to things that actually tell us how we're doing, things like childhood success rates, levels of engagement with work to the point of your podcast, where it's not enough to measure how much work we're doing, but whether it's work we want to be doing. Right environmental sustainability. So if we implement different measurements for the economy, then we can start rewarding both individual and corporate behavior that moves society in, in a particular direction. And that's what human-centered capitalism or human capitalism is all about. Well, that's great. You know, you touched on so much. And on your website, I learned that you're passionate about, you know, the success rate of marriages and outcomes for children. And you've got yes. something on there called the Freedom Dividend. And that really caught my attention. So can you tell me more about the Freedom Dividend? What is it and how does it work? Yeah, the Freedom Dividend is perhaps the biggest policy I'm proposing in a sea of quite big policies, honestly. <laughs> but the, the Freedom Dividend is Universal basic income where every American adult gets $1,000 per month, free and clear, no questions asked. And this would dramatically improve many, many millions of Americans' ways of life. And it would also help people do work that they value more intrinsically, because if you were to take the existential threat off of people where everyone knows they're getting at least enough to get by, then people would have their heads up and start thinking about what it is that they really want to do. And so the Freedom Dividend is an old idea where it passed the House of Representatives in 1971, and a policy like it has been in effect in Alaska for the last 36 years. But as we're going through these historic changes, we need to revisit this old idea that goes all the way back to Thomas Paine and the Founding Fathers. And at this point, our society is wealthy enough, we're up to $19 trillion in GDP, that we can easily afford a dividend of $1,000 per adult. So the listeners of the show are not unfamiliar with universal basic income. We've had guests on to explain it. And different guests have talked about different ways of funding it so that it overcomes the concerns of many of my listeners who feel like it's welfare. How do you propose that we rethink our economy to incorporate universal basic income without it being a disincentive? Oh, that's the thing I love about universal basic income is that it's, it's a purely a positive incentive because you keep it all. And then if you do better or make more money on top of that, then you keep all of that too. Whereas our current welfare system often, unfortunately, disincentivizes a certain level of success because if you start doing better, then your benefits go down. So the way we need to pay for universal basic income, in my opinion, really is if you look at what Alaska did, they took oil money in the 80s and now everyone in Alaska gets up to $2,000 a year, no questions asked. So if you ask yourself, what is the oil of the 21st century in America, and it's technology, artificial intelligence, data, software, autonomous vehicles, these innovations are going to drive immense value very, very quickly. But right now, the American people are not in a position to benefit from that because the big tech companies that are going to capture that value don't pay a lot of the taxes right now in the income tax system. So what I'm recommending is that we implement a value-added tax, which is something that every other industrialized countries has already done. And so we would get a slice of every Amazon purchase, every Google search, and then that money would be used to fund the freedom dividend for all Americans. 
So many of my listeners have written in after learning about universal basic income and they have concerns about the value-added tax and they feel like our current tax system is already onerous and they are either for the current Trump tax cut or they at least feel that corporations have a burden on them and they fear a value-added tax. They don't feel like it will necessarily cover universal basic income. And they're also worried about our deficit. So do you have any thoughts on how we square the circle of giving money to American citizens when our current economic structure within the government is still so messy? Well, it is a bit of a mess, but we can't let present mismanagement delude us into thinking that we don't have the resources because we clearly do. Again, our economy is up to a record 19 trillion, up 4 trillion in the last 10 years alone. If you look at universal basic income in practice, right now, 57% of Americans can't afford an unexpected $500 bill. People are living week to week, paycheck to paycheck, month to month. And so if we put this $1,000 a month into Americans' hands, they're going to spend the vast majority of it in their local economy very, very quickly. And then it's going to increase what's called the velocity of money, which is that money is going to get spent multiple times in that community. It's going to create 4 million new jobs, because if you imagine every town in America with more money to spend, then there's going to be much more business flowing through And then we're going to get back a significant amount of that economic value in new tax revenue and business growth. We're also going to benefit immensely from the fact that we're going to be making our children healthier and better nourished and better able to learn. Graduation rates will go up. Mental health will improve. Worker productivity will improve. Domestic violence and hospital visits will go down. One study showed that if you alleviate child poverty in the U.S., it would increase GDP by $700 alone just based upon better health outcomes, educational outcomes, and productivity. So we need to start seeing ourselves as assets and people to invest in as opposed to, oh no, like cost got to try and minimize, you know, any investment in people because good companies invest in their people and we should do the same for our citizens, for ourselves as the owners and shareholders of the wealthiest country in the history of the world. Yeah, that's so very well said. I don't disagree with any of that. You know, for me in 2018, having worked in corporate human resources now for over 20 years in and around and adjacent to the field, I am so offended by the fact that we don't have equal pay or paid family leave. And I know you have some proposals around those initiatives, but can you take a step back and tell us why work is still so broken in those areas and I don't know why we haven't done justice to the citizens and the workers who have made this country so profitable and so productive. You know, when I was digging into these issues, Lori, I was shocked at how anti-family and frankly, anti-women our workplace policies are, where you know this, but the list of countries that don't have paid family leave for new mothers is us, Swaziland, Papua New Guinea, and Lesotho. like those are the four countries. That's a whole list. Yeah. And most Americans could not pick these other three countries out on a map for good reason, because they're not great places. I mean, you know, just telling it like it is. I mean, those are not countries you want to be on a list with. Right, right. No, I'm not going there anytime soon. Agree. No, yeah. Me neither. So that's like a very clear indication of just how deranged the American focus is on this misplaced sense of capital efficiency, where it's like, oh, you give a mom time off, that's going to be bad for capital. It's like, well, you know, that's incredibly stupid because, you know, if the mom spends time with the child, then the mom will be able to come back to work and then that's going to be good for your business. The child's going to end up better primed to succeed and that's good for us all long term. So like, it's really incredibly stupid. But if you ask, how did we get here? I mean, I think that 
the U.S. has become almost pathologically obsessed with capital efficiency, and hopefully the pendulum will swing the other direction because capital efficiency is going to lead us in very, very destructive directions upcoming as, for example, truck starts driving themselves. And so right now we have three and a half million truck drivers in the U.S. That's the most common job in 29 states. So if you say to those truck drivers, hey, you were worth $46,000 last year, now you're worth zero, then how is that going to go? It's going to go really, really terribly. So we need to start developing our own estimation of our own value in terms of not just what the market says, but of what we say and what we think the contributions of different people are. And that includes mothers, parents, caregivers, because there's a massive deficit of that sort of work in our society and we're undervaluing it right now. Yeah, really well said. You know, as you were talking about truck drivers, I started to think about how we're in this jobs apocalypse right now and we're losing retail jobs, we're losing restaurant jobs, we're just losing jobs, right? And the jobs that we do have are not necessarily... Well, I just read a book called Bullshit Jobs, A Theory. I don't know if you read that book, but I love it. And he writes that a lot of the jobs that currently exist in our economy are these bullshit jobs that just kill time and tie workers to a desk and add very little meaning to our society. And so there's a rise of that and there's a decline of really good, meaningful trades work and all that stuff that we used to have in our economy. All right. So we've got this jobs apocalypse going on right now and we have the rise of AI and there's some natural tension there. And you on your website, talk a little bit about the regulation of AI and also the potential of AI. And so I wonder, can you talk to our listeners about that and explain your position on AI and regulation and how that intersects with our economy? Yes. So AI is going to be in position to be able to do many wonderful things in the years to come. But one other thing it's going to be in position to do is replace many, many workers. So there are two and a half million call center workers in the US. AI will be able to do much of that job very quickly. Truck drivers, three and a half million, you know, in addition to another million or so taxi and limo drivers. Autonomous vehicles rely upon artificial intelligence and machine learning. And so in addition to all of the wonderful things, like potentially helping to cure cancer is one application of AI. I mean, obviously, we'd all be incredibly excited about that. But the near-term issue is that millions of Americans' livelihoods are likely to evaporate because of AI. And in our current system, there's really no great transition plan for large groups of workers who lose their jobs. So wait, I'm going to interrupt you because there's not only not a transition plan, there's a lack of fluency in Washington around technology. Nobody is speaking this language. They're fighting the battles from 50 years ago around social issues. And so I'm just concerned that beyond a plan, they're not even aware. There's no language in Washington right now around AI and technology. So yeah, I couldn't agree more. And that's why I'm running for president. Yeah. I mean, our government has gone from being decades behind to now like dangerously backwards where we're being caught unawares by an elephant in the room that's about to destroy millions of jobs. And again, has already brought us Donald Trump because of the decimation of manufacturing jobs in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Missouri, all the states that needed to win in the middle of the country all went to Trump. And it's about to get much, much worse and our government isn't responding to it. So I couldn't agree with you more that we need to advance our government and society as quickly as possible to account for the fact that AI is real, it's with us, it's about to accelerate, and it's going to do many wonderful things, but it's going to replace many, many jobs as well. So how do you regulate it? What's that all about? Well, so the people in Silicon Valley are concerned about existential threats from AI. Now, it sounds very dark, but... (laughs) No, it does not. It's real. Yeah. 
Yeah, it is real. I mean, that AI would go and, for example, like fool our systems into like declaring war on like ourselves, you know, yeah, essentially where they go, like phantom missile attacks. And so then like everyone's responding with real missile attacks. And that is possible. And so that's something that we should be safeguarding against very, very vigilantly. And the people in Silicon Valley are saying, you know, Elon Musk is on the record saying, hey, this could be like a massive existential level threat. So that we should be regulating very, very deliberately. And then the question in my mind is something more commercial, like if you have AI that can replace call center workers, it would be, in my opinion, an immensely counterproductive to say, well, no, 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 can't make call centers automated because we just need 2 million Americans to have those jobs and make $14 an hour. Right. So if AI can genuinely do that job, then it should do that job. And then theoretically, these 2.5 million call center workers would find something else to do. The problem is that right now, that something else is unclear. And the, there are these talking points around re-education and retraining programs that are a farce, where if you yeah. dig into the numbers, they're almost entirely ineffective. They apply to fewer than 10% of workers. And so if a politician says something about retraining education, they're just blowing smoke. And so there's a massive need for genuine solutions as to how we can provide new quality structures for people that are going to need to make these very, very significant transitions. And that's one reason why I was so glad to join you, because fixing work and broadening our conception of work is, to me, a core challenge of this age. And it's something that, unfortunately, in my opinion, like it gets pushed onto women in large yeah, part. It's right. like you look up and then women are like, oh, we need to, and we 100% do need to broaden our idea of work and value. And, you know, I'm, a, I'm an executive saying that's exactly what we need to do, but it's not just like, oh, we should feel better about it. I mean, this is like a core challenge to keep our society whole and functioning in the years to come. So there are no easy answers to what do we do with all these people, right? I mean, there's no simple answer, but one of them would be to really rethink how we approach continuous learning. And you touched on that. And what we have right now are a broken patchwork of community colleges, some for-profit training institutions. And we keep telling all of these adults over the age of 50, go back to school and learn how to code. <laughs> like, you know, like, like that's a solution to anything in this world, right? Yeah, most of the people are saying that are not coders. Yeah, uh, <laughs> agree, agree, agree. So do you have any ideas? What do we do with some of these workers? Because it's going to be rough and it's going to be ugly, but it doesn't have to be as rough and ugly as it could be. Yes. So I do have a few ideas in this direction. So the first is if you put $1,000 in the hands of every American adult with a freedom dividend, then many of these people will end up finding other forms of work that they find fulfilling, you can collaborate in various ways. And by making the local economy stronger, again, we would create about 4 million jobs around the country because let's say you were a truck driver and then you lose your job. And then you say, okay, I go home. And then there are maybe some people in your town now because of this freedom dividend who get together and say like, hey, like maybe we should start a little construction business or a little hunting business or a little, you know, it's like that sort of would endeavor. Love it. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And it would become much more realistic because everyone has money to spend and everyone has some economic security where you know if your business is a dud, you don't starve. You'd be like, all right, that didn't work. And then you think of something else to do and then you grab in some more people. And so the goal is to build a more human-centered economy where we all have intrinsic value. And then you would end up building a different sort of artisanal economy that would have many more accessible opportunities 
for workers at every skill level, every age, every stage. So universal basic income has to be paired with some solution for healthcare. There's no other way to get around that. So many workers, so many listeners of this podcast write and say, there but for the grace of God go I. I would love to quit my job and go back to school, but I provide healthcare for my husband and my children. What's your approach to healthcare in 2020? Like, what's your position on that? Well, I mean, your listeners are very, very representative of all Americans where so many Americans are discouraged from leaving their job or starting a company or making any change because they need the healthcare. And so our current healthcare system disincentivizes dynamism in various ways. And it's also still like this massive burden on families and businesses where it's the number one cause of personal bankruptcy. It makes it harder for businesses to hire more people and expand. And so what we need to do is we need to get the cost of healthcare off the backs of families and businesses and implement a Medicare for all single payer system. Because if you reflect on it for a moment, if you believe that the nature of work is changing, which it is, and 94% of the new jobs created in the U.S. since 2005 have been gig temporary or contractor jobs, which they have been, which do not have healthcare benefits, then we need to have a new mechanism for providing healthcare. And so we need to move towards a single payer system, which is also going to bring costs way down. Not that anyone needs to care because at this point you don't have to pay for it. But right now the U.S. is spending twice as much as other countries on its healthcare to worse results because our incentives are all wrong, because the incentives are all around cost and activity and not around healthfulness and making people better. Well, as we wrap up today's podcast, one of the things I want to leave with is this discussion of immigration, because working in human resources for the past 20 years, it's been my mantra to get the right people in the right job and to retain the best and brightest workers. And we have this anti-immigration rhetoric that's so prevalent in our society right now. And I just wonder what your thoughts are about that. And how do we entice and retain great global workers to help make America truly great? I have very strong feelings about this because my parents immigrated to this country from Taiwan in the 1960s. My father got his PhD in physics and generated 69 US patents for GE and IBM over his career. So he made that decision decades ago and that helped you know me, my brother, like my children. And so I'm very eager to make the case to people around the world that America is still the place you wanna to come to build a business and have a family. And imagine if there were President Andrew Yang in 2021. I mean, that would become like the single biggest uh, marker <laughs> to, to this country. And then your kid can become president. The American dream right there. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you know, like people joke that the opposite of Donald Trump is an Asian man who likes numbers. <laughs> and I would be the opposite of Donald Trump in this regard, too, because he's all like, stay out. And I'm like, come on in. Right. <laughs> he would staple a green card to the diploma of any international student because it makes no sense to educate and train people here and then send them away. And you working in HR, I mean, you must have navigated all this H-1B visa stuff dozens yeah. and dozens of times. I mean, I have friends who are in that space, too. And you have to play so many ridiculous games to try and keep people in. And it's really a waste of time and energy when it's a no-brainer that most of these people should be contributing to American companies. Yeah, and now HR departments are working under the threat of ICE investigations and ICE raids. And that's another complexity that I never thought I would have in my career or my colleagues would have in their career, but they're worried about being invaded and then having to go through and justify that all these really great workers are where they need to be. And it's just so counterproductive to 
productivity, profitability, revenue, and just enjoying your job. I mean, it's just crazy these days. Well, I can guarantee if I were president, HR professionals would not have to worry about ICE <laughs> like showing up and trying to investigate who's working where because that's not where our energies need to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Andrew, it's been a real pleasure talking to you today. If there's one thought about your candidacy that you can leave with the listeners today, what is it? Well, we have to reimagine what's still possible in this country. And if I'm a listener to your podcast, I'm frustrated because you, Lori, can see, like if most of your listeners can see where the changes need to be made, but the changes aren't really happening in most organizations. If anything, organizations are getting more and more restrictive in terms of like trying to make ends meet because a lot of people are under pressures. So we need to rewrite the rules of this economy from the top down. We need to build a new trickle up economy from human beings up and families up and people up. And that's why I'm running for president. But this vision will only come about if someone like me gets into the Oval Office and rewrites the rules of the economy. But that's my mission. I've got two young kids, a six-year-old and a three-year-old, one of whom has special needs. And we need to make this an economy that works for people again. So if anyone listening to this wants to help make this a reality, please do go to yang2020.com. Check out some of the policies that Lori spent a little bit of time reviewing. I've got a bunch of them on the website. But with your help, we can make them real. And there's such a huge appetite for change. And I just want to congratulate you, Lori, for helping galvanize this awesome community around how to fix work because we do need to fix work in the, the worst way. Well, I really appreciate your support, Andrew. And thanks for being a guest on today's podcast. My pleasure. It's great to be here. And everybody, sit tight. We'll be right back with more Let's Fix Work. Hey, everybody. You know I love to brag about my friends. I also like to listen to them. And right now, I'm listening to Jennifer McClure, host of the Impact Makers podcast. Jennifer is connecting with leaders across all industries to figure out how to make a difference at work and in the world. Here's what she's got going on. I believe strongly that each of us has the ability and the opportunity to positively impact people through our work and through how we choose to live our lives. The truth is that you've already impacted people in this world, even if you haven't been trying. I love what Jennifer has to say. And if you like what you're hearing right here on Let's Fix Work, you'll love what Jennifer's talking about on Impact Makers. So go to jennifermcclure.net forward slash iTunes and subscribe today. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Andrew Yang. You can learn more about him and his platform in our show notes. And just a word that you can also find me at L. Rudiman and Let's Fix Work all over the internet and also on Patreon, where I'm assembling a community that's trying to make work better. Let's Fix Work is a production of One Stone Creative, Audra, Megan, and Gerson make the show sound great, but we can't do this without you. So please share, rate, and review the show and head on over to your favorite podcast player and hit subscribe. Now that's all for today. And I hope you enjoyed it. I'll see you next time on Let's Fix Work. If you're ready to make a real change in your workplace, start today by subscribing to this podcast and help us get the word out by leaving a review. 